Many of us today are experiencing a feeling of exile. More frequently, we hear or say, I miss the way things were, a phrase commonly spoken about changes that are, at first, experienced as unwelcome, like a relationship ending, losing a job, or losing a place of privilege. But sometimes, it is in the midst of seasons of displacement that the greatest growth occurs and the greatest blessings are found. The exile of the Bible was a time of massive displacement when Israel was forced to leave behind many of its norms. And yet, it was during this season of loss that the Jewish faith underwent its most powerful and transformative spiritual growth. This Lent, by exploring the spiritual awakening of exile, we pastors hope to focus on areas needing attention in the church and country today. Join us as we go deeper into the search of faith to discover what can be found precisely when we think so much has been lost. Let us pray. Gracious God, as we turn to your word for us, may your spirit rest upon us. Help us to be steadfast in our hearing, in our speaking, in our believing, and in our living. And may this sacrament be for us a reminder of your claim and grace upon our lives. Amen. Friends, our scripture reading for this morning comes from the New Testament Gospel of Luke, chapter 19, and may be found on page 850 of your pew Bible if you would like to follow along. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He's headed there for Passover with his disciples. Finally, he has come to the place he's headed Hear now these words from Holy Scripture, from Luke 19, beginning at verse 28. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he had come near Bethpage and Bethany, at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village ahead of you. As you enter it, you will find tied there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Just say this, the Lord needs it. So those who were sent departed and found it as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They said, the Lord needs it. Then they brought it to Jesus, and after throwing their cloaks on the colt, they sent Jesus on it. As he rode along, people kept spreading their cloaks on the road. As he was now approaching the path down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the deeds of power they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, Order your disciples to stop. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, even the stones would shout. Then please receive one more reading. Just one verse from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter Jerusalem. Lo, your king comes to you, triumphant and victorious is he humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
Zechariah. The name itself means God remembered. We spent the last number of weeks in this Lenten season in exile, reflecting back on the 70 years or so God's people were either cast out from the promised land or left behind in its ruins. By the time of the prophet Zechariah, Cyrus the Great had conquered Babylon, and the people of Israel were able to return home again. But when they arrived, they realized there was little left to return to. They had dreamed for seven decades about going home to the way things used to be, or to the way, at least, their rose-colored memories told them it used to be. Zechariah wrote and preached and told them not to despair. A better day was coming. A new king would arrive. God had remembered them. God remembered God's promise to save them. God remembered and would someday send a Messiah, a Savior. Lo, your king comes to you triumphant and victorious as he, humble and riding on a donkey. The prophets foretold it. Earlier in Luke, the angels proclaimed it. Glory to God in the highest heavens, and on earth peace among those whom he favors. We come to Jerusalem some 550 years after Zechariah's prophecy. The people on the road to Jerusalem that day knew what the prophets foretold. They had been waiting for a Messiah for generations. And then they saw Jesus. Jesus, this man who had healed the sick, fed the multitude, set captives free, made the blind see, the lame walk, and talked to God as Father. Jesus the one the masses followed and the religious elite despised. He had set his face to Jerusalem some time ago, and now here he comes, humble and riding on a donkey, just as Zechariah prophesied. They had dreamed of a warrior king, someone who could restore Jerusalem to the glory days generations before the city and temple were destroyed. They had dreamed of someone like King David, they longed to be free of Rome. They yearned for the city to be a seat of real power and might, revered among the nations. They knew what they wanted. We know they won't get it. I can remember the first time I met Mrs. Thompson. It was at freshman class orientation at Greer High School in my hometown in South Carolina. Mrs. Thompson had been my mother's high school gym teacher years before. But by the time I got to Greer High, she was the vice principal. Now, Mrs. Thompson was the kind of person you did not cross. She carried a bullhorn everywhere she went in the school. The hallways of our high school were narrow and crowded, but she had the eye of an eagle. She could see through all those adolescent bodies of chaos down the crowded hallways and catch anyone up to no good. She'd say, Miss Howell, this isn't Burger King. You can't have it your way. <laughs> and Mr. Anderson, this isn't Burger King. You can't have it your way. The sound of that bullhorn clicking on 
struck fear into the heart of every new kid in the building. I'm sure the older kids still felt it too. Mr. Link, you can't have it your way. Now I have no idea what ever became of Mrs. Thompson, but her mantra still rings in my ear. You can't always have it your way. The crowds on that first Palm Sunday in Jerusalem knew exactly what they wanted, but they wouldn't get things their way. They wanted this itinerant preacher from Nazareth to start a riot, to start a revolt, to restore their city, their homeland, to some sought-after glory. They flooded the street. They took the cloaks off their backs. They waved whatever they had, and they made a makeshift carpet before him. They cried out, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Let me tell you, it takes some real chutzpah to cry out for a king when there are informants with bullhorns, figuratively speaking, around every corner in that city. On that day, that very same day, Pontius Pilate was also entering from the other side of Jerusalem in a parade all his own. He too was making the trek for Passover. Not a Jew himself, Pilate traveled to keep the citizens of this Roman territory in check. After all, Passover is a Jewish festival which celebrates when God set God's people free from the empire. It was essential for Rome to keep a strong presence throughout this religious season. So it was up to Pilate and his legions of armed soldiers and guards to remind the Jewish people just who their ruler really is. Knowing all this, it's no wonder the Pharisees were nervous. In Luke 13, some of the Pharisees had even warned Jesus that Herod wanted to kill him. Regardless of what they thought of the man, they advised Jesus to lay low for his own sake, if not for the sake of his disciples. Here again in Luke 19, some Pharisees implore Jesus to order the crowd to stop their subversive chant. Such a display of royal pretensions could bring the wrath of those in power in Jerusalem, whether it be the Sanhedrin, Herod, or Pilate himself. As it turns out, in a matter of days, Jesus will pass in judgment before all three. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, his disciples cry. And then they echo the multitude of angels who sang to lowly shepherds on a hillside to announce the birth of Messiah years ago. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. The people knew what they wanted. The disciples knew what they wanted. If only things would play out the way they dreamed about it for centuries. Perhaps if things could go their way, Jesus could ride all the way up to the palace where he would be enthroned immediately, ending their oppression under Roman Empire and bringing suffering to an end. Or perhaps Jesus could ride all the way to the temple where he would take his rightful place as Lord and could establish the heavenly kingdom on earth when every knee would bow and every tongue confess. It's the way we might rewrite the scene ourselves if we could go back in time and change it. But we can't always have it our way. The crowd that day didn't get what they wanted. Their king didn't enter in grandeur and majesty. 
Instead, he rode awkwardly positioned on the back of a never-ridden donkey. Their king didn't head for the palace, but rode and walked and ate among the peasants. Their king didn't march through the streets of Jerusalem inciting a revolution. He continued the difficult, uncertain, and painful path to the cross. This is not the way these people wanted the story to go. If we're honest with ourselves, this isn't the way we want things to go. It goes against everything we know about power. It's a story we tell each year, and yet it never gets easier. All through the gospel, Jesus has set his face toward Jerusalem. He's opened up God's word in new ways. He's healed people. He's amassed quite a following. Up until here, we're along for the ride. We're right there with his disciples, caught up in the fervor, excited to share the good news. And then we get into Jerusalem. And we know what comes next. We've heard it or read it or seen it before. Fred Craddock writes, Sooner or later, somebody is going to say to you, Then what happened to Jesus? And when you tell them the truth, that he came to the city as a 33-year-old young idealist and stirred the city, and the city turned on him just like that and put him on trial and executed him. Some people are going to back away. People aren't that interested in a man who dies like that. It's a terrible growth strategy for the church, all that morbid suffering and bleeding and dying. This king does not come with earthly power to overthrow the empire. This king comes into Jerusalem not as a conquering hero, but as a servant. And the crowds who hail him today will shout crucify him by the end of the week. This Messiah, our Messiah, was going up into Jerusalem because that's the way you enter a city on the hill. He was going up into Jerusalem in order that he might go down to die. It doesn't make sense. It's not the way we would choose. It's the wrong kind of homecoming. You know, it was about this time two years ago that I officiated a wedding for our former associate pastor, the Reverend Rachel Thompson Orfield. Rachel and her husband had planned a big wedding, extending the invitation to our whole church. But like so many hopeful couples, they didn't get things the way they wanted in 2020. Instead, Rachel and Noah eloped with a pastor, six family members, and a photographer. A state trooper slowly counted us every time he drove past to make sure we kept within the 10-person cap along the Blue Ridge Parkway. Rachel's grandmother and other family members joined by FaceTime, and the wedding that was supposed to be a celebration for our whole congregation took place sweetly and simply on the side of a quiet mountain. We all have heard or experienced many stories like this, something that was both beautiful and still a little sad at the same time. On April 7th, Three days ago, a few news sources shared the photograph of Anastasia and Vyakoslav, two young Ukrainian soldiers 
who stood in the midst of a bombed-out, temporarily quiet Kiev to exchange their wedding vows. Both in combat fatigues, Anastasia wore a crown of white roses and held a bouquet as she and her groom placed rings on one another's fingers with smiles as pure as bright as any couple right here in a sanctuary on their wedding day. An Orthodox teacher uses the phrase glittering sadness to describe such a scene. There is such unbearable beauty and yet still pain. I wonder where we would see ourselves in this story in Luke. Maybe you would be a disciple caught up in the fervor of this impromptu parade. Maybe you would be a Pharisee pleading with the crowd to keep it down lest they draw too much attention from the wrong people. Maybe you would be on the periphery wanting to stay out of trouble. It's hard to say, isn't it? For those of us on the other side of Easter, we can feel the tension of glitter and sadness on this first Palm Sunday some 2,000 years ago. Jesus had to know this dual reality, too. For some time now, he's hinted at what awaited him in Jerusalem. Did he know exactly what the next few days would hold? Could he imagine? I don't think he could have predicted each and every detail, but he had some real sense of what lie ahead. He didn't have to follow through. He could have chosen not to enter Jerusalem in such a dramatic way. He could have turned tail and run. He could have entered discreetly and not made a scene. But no. Jesus' carefully made plans reflect his commitment to go to the city that will reject and crucify him because of his great love for that city. Indeed, because of his great love for the whole world. William Barclay, the Scottish New Testament scholar, once commented that there are two kinds of courage in this world. The kind of courage that prompts someone to throw themselves in the way of an oncoming car to push a child to safety. It's the kind of bravery that's instinctual, habitual, and is revealed in the moments of crisis. And there's also the kind of courage that sees danger coming from a long way off, that has plenty of time to choose an alternative path, yet chooses to stay the course, to remain faithful, to endure the mounting fear in order to do one's duty. It is this second kind of courage we see in Jesus. He knows what lies ahead of him. He has seen it coming for most his life. He has plenty of opportunity to flee the path for safety, but he does not. He stays the course, endures the fear, makes plans to embrace it in love and wrestle it to the death. Jesus accepts today's blessings and hosannas, knowing that the crowds will turn on him, his disciples will desert him, and the only crown that awaits him is pain. Here we stand at the threshold of another holy week. Here we are. Here is our God. In glittering sadness, may we take up our cross and follow him. Second Presbyterian, 
Finding Direction by Following Jesus.